the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. You and I are not speeding down the highway in a DeLorean right now. And this building is not a hot tub or a magic treehouse. And yet, our church, when animated by our worship together, is a kind of a time machine. During our worship service, we take up the words and songs and practices of the past, some of which are very ancient indeed. And in doing so, we seek to bring ourselves in these moments into alignment with gospel history. You know it well. We wait with Israel for the Messiah in Advent, join in the angels' glorias at Christmas, journey with kings at Epiphany, turn our faces to Jerusalem during Lent, walk the way of the cross during Holy Week, and travel the road to Emmaus at Easter. Of course, such events are not actually happening here and now. The death he died, he died once for all. But nevertheless, we act them out, performing what Kevin Van Hooser calls the drama of doctrine in the hopes that our vocation, that is to be agents of new creation in the world, might extend to how we order our hours and days, our seasons and our years. Through this time machine of ours, we aim to conform our calendar to Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord of all time. We time travel each Sunday morning as well, compressing three years into one hour. The theologian Simon Chan, himself drawing on the work of Jean-Jacques von Allman, notes that Christian worship is properly characterized by two key moments, the proclamation of the word and the celebration of the table. And these two moments of our liturgy align with two important periods from the life of Christ, a Galilean moment focused on Christ's teaching and preaching, and a Jerusalemite moment focused on Christ's passion. As we preach the word and celebrate the Eucharist each week, we order this hour according to the life of our Lord. Our liturgical time machine doesn't just make the past present, however, it makes the future present as well. And the Feast of All Saints, which is what we're celebrating today, is a wonderful opportunity to consider both. So load another canister of plutonium, Marty, fire up your flux capacitor, and buckle your seatbelts, because today we're going to be talking about ways to make the past and the future present. If you're looking for a single takeaway, this is it. Jesus Christ blesses his people with gifts from both the past and the future in order to strengthen us in the present. The sermon has three parts, gifts from the past, gifts from the future, and part three is a coda, or is it a prologue? about the communion of saints. Part one, gifts from the past. Our epistle reading today comes from the first chapter of Ephesians. There are lots of reasons why this letter is stunning, but one is Paul's repetition early on of the idea that the Ephesians are in Christ. He uses the phrase in Christ in chapter one, verse three, in him and in his sight in verse four, in the one, verse 5, in him, verse 7, in him, verse 11, in Christ, verse 12, in Christ, verse 13, and in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 15. The language is, of course, hugely significant. 
for understanding things like salvation and predestination, but that's really for another sermon. What I want to point out today is the curious shift we find in verse 18. After Paul has offered this litany of in Christ's and in hymns, we, are, we arrive at his prayer that we may, quote, know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It's a bit jarring, but these are remarkable words. We'll need to turn to Revelation to begin to glimpse the full significance of what this inheritance consists of. But the short version is this. Our inheritance, which is somehow held mysteriously in and among the saints, is nothing less than the presence of Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ in this life will find that he is fully in their midst in the next one. Saints of the past testify to this remarkable inheritance. They're pointers to Jesus Christ. They present him to us. None of them were perfect during their lives, of course, and yet they show us in as many different ways as there are saints what it means to cling to our promised inheritance, to live lives with and for the Lord. That's the gift from the past, the lives and stories of the faithful who have come before us. There's a scene I love from Marilyn Robinson's book, Gilead, that speaks to what a blessing this gift is. As you may know, Gilead takes the form of a series of letters written from a dying pastor named John Ames to his young son, and the entire book is luminous. But there's a moving passage in which Pastor Ames describes an encounter with one of his elderly parishioners. Ames writes, Lacey Thrush died last night. Isn't that a name? Her mother was a Lacey. They were an old family here in Iowa, but she was the last of the Laceys and the Thrushes went off to California. She was a maiden lady. She died promptly and decorously out of consideration for me, I suspect, since she had been concerned about my health. She was conscious half an hour, unconscious half an hour, and gone. We said the Lord's Prayer, 23rd Psalm. Then she wanted to hear, when I survey the wondrous cross, one last time. So I sang, and she hummed a little, and then she started nodding off. I am full of admiration for her. She's given me a lot to live up to, so to speak. At any rate, she didn't keep me up past my bedtime. And the peacefulness of her sleep contributed mightily to the peacefulness of mine. These old saints bless us every chance they get. That's what I wanted you to hear. These old saints bless us every chance they get. Lacey Thrush was a blessing to Reverend Ames because of the way in which she held on to her inheritance right up to the end. Hers was not a showy life. She wasn't a giant of the faith, but it is often not so with the saints. Some saints are renowned figures like Tim Keller, who died this year. But others, much like Lacey Thrush, have a gentle dignity about them, pointing quietly and unceremoniously to the Lord. Esau Macaulay writes about this sort of saint in a wonderful op-ed published in the New York Times last year, just around this time. It's, it's called Halloween is for Heroes, Not for Ghosts, but it's, it's really about All Saints Day. Here's Macaulay. Saints are not simply those with great outward achievements. Saint Therese of Lisieux, 
grew up in 19th century France admiring the heroic actions of the saints and concluded that she could never accomplish such outstanding deeds. Instead, she chose what has become known as the little way. I like that, the little way. She pursued the tiny virtues, believing that every interaction, no matter how small, gave her an opportunity to show God's love through a kind word or act of service and to display patience with all the inconveniences of life. She entered the convent at age 15 and died of tuberculosis at 24. She wasn't on this earth long, but her small acts of service, love and kindness had such a profound impact on those around her that her vision of the little way still inspires people today. These old saints bless us every chance they get, even and perhaps especially in the little things. Okay, part two, gifts from the future. The book of Revelation is the natural place to turn to reflect on the gifts we receive from the future, and we're going to go there in just a minute. But let's look at our gospel reading first. The passage is a well-known one. It's the Beatitudes, the stunning introduction to Jesus' most famous sermon. The Beatitudes are a breathtaking gift from God to his people, and I think there are a few things better in this life than being declared blessed by Jesus. But what I hadn't fully grasped until working on this sermon is that most of the Beatitudes are framed as gifts coming straight from the future. That is, the present blessedness of the saint is tied at least in part to a future reality. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In some mysterious way, the saints of God receive some measure of their future inheritance now. And this has huge implications. Being declared blessed, that is, receiving the assurance of one's future reality, makes all the difference in the world for how we live in the present. It's a source of strength for enduring suffering, for resisting temptation, for rejecting violence, for dismantling systems of oppression, or, to put this in more positive terms, for engaging in the work of new creation, for doing justly, for loving mercy, and for walking humbly with our God. Look, whether or not you're digging this sermon's time travel theme, hear me when I say that the future is, in some fundamental sense, now for those who are in Christ Jesus. And don't just take my word for it. In his book, Paul for Everyone, N.T. Wright argues that on the cross, quote, the final judgment day has been brought forward into the middle of history. Get that, the future is now. God's righteous verdict against sinners has been meted out against the faithful Israelite. We don't have to wait to discover who will be vindicated, Wright continues, who really belongs to God's people. They already wear a badge that marks them out in the present time, as Paul says. Wright notes, here is the meaning of justification by faith. When anyone believes in the gospel, God declares that he or she is, note the present tense, is truly one of those who will be vindicated in the future. The future is now for those who are in Christ Jesus. With that in mind, let's turn to our passage from Revelation, which itself is a, a book from the future, essentially. The first thing to highlight is the makeup of the company of saints. 
It includes people from everywhere and from every when. John writes that he beheld a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. It's one of the Bible's greatest visions of what Christian community ought to look like. Note well that differences have not been erased in this vision. John can tell that the saintly multitude is made up of people from every nation and tribe and people group and and language. And yet there's unity among them. The peoples of the world are unified in their allegiance to Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. This is a beautiful and glorious image, a community in which racism and xenophobia and nationalism have no place. And this gift from the future ought to serve as a blueprint for us, guiding the ways that we work for new creation here and now in our cities, our communities, our institutions, especially our churches. The second thing that comes into focus in our reading from Revelation is what our glorious inheritance in the saints consists of. It's the Lord. He is the one in the midst of them. And who is this Lord? Well, so many images from the pages of scripture come rushing together at this point that the passage, it seems like it's almost going to burst. But one of the main images here is the throne. In our reading, the word throne occurs seven times alerting us to the fact that we're dealing with a king. And the royal imagery is amplified by the language of the saints who cry out blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Teachers of rhetoric call this polysyndeton, which involves linking items in a series together with a repeated conjunction, in this case, and. All those ands slow us down, making the language more formal, even regal. This is language fit for a king. But though the language is formal, we're not dealing with some distant king, one who is far removed from his subjects. No, this is the servant king, heralded not with the military might of an army, but with the palm branches of the saints. Verse 9. This is the crucified king the Lamb of God whose blood cleanses the white robes of the saints, verse 14. This is the protector king, the one who guards his saints from the sun and the scorching heat. This is the shepherd king who goes after his lost ones and guides them to living water, verse 17. This is the comforter king who tenderly wipes away the tears of the faithful, verse 17. In short, this king is Emmanuel, God with us, and with his presence comes peace and righteousness and protection and new life and comfort. Yes, all of this is our glorious inheritance in the saints, my friends. Here, then, is another gift from the future, a majestic vision of our promised inheritance. We will be among the saints and with our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. Part three, a coda, or is it a preface, about the communion of saints? Today is the feast of all saints, so let me reflect, uh, close with a reflection on the Eucharist, which is also a gift from the past and the future, is it not? Our Eucharistic liturgy repeats the words Jesus uttered on the night he was betrayed, joining us to those disciples who were in the upper room. And it simultaneously transports us forward to the end of time. Here is Simon Chan again, 
writing about that moment from our Eucharistic liturgy known as the Sanctus. During the Sanctus Chan notes, the saints on earth join with the hosts of heaven in their unending song of praise. Holy, holy, holy. And then Chan says, the setting is unmistakably heaven. At every celebration of the Eucharist, Father Arcadi wrote in our bulletin last week, we are joined around the sacred table to have a foretaste of a, the great resurrection feast where all Christians join together to feast on the body and blood of our Lord. Time flows in strange ways up here. Occasionally when I come to the communion rail, I think about the saints I've known in my own life, imagining them taking communion alongside me, behind me. Let me tell you about, let me close by telling you about one of them. It's my grandpa, Raymond Fry. Before my grandpa died, he had suffered from dementia and had become almost unrecognizable to us. His speech was all but gone, as was his laugh. He had a very characteristic laugh and his winsome spirit. My grandpa had been a school principal and later in his life he had been a stewardship director for the Mennonite church. His was a life of faithful service to the Lord, but because of the dementia, we felt like we hadn't seen him or heard from him in years. But then, the week of his funeral, as the family was going through belongings with my grandma, we started finding stuff. It turns out that before getting sick, grandpa had written constantly, and his drawers were filled with notebooks. They contained teaching ideas, jokes, and to-do lists. I've got to tell you about one to-do list. It says, things to do with the grandchildren. All right, me. And like, there, there's the typical stuff. It's like fishing, basketball. And then far down on the list, it says, mixing cement. <laughs> <laughs> we never mix cement. I, but I, I love the thought of him, like writing that out. The notebooks also contained reflections on important moments of his life nearly always followed with a prayer or a Bible verse. He had, with great consistency, written the Holy Scriptures right into his time, into his days. In his own way, he was a practitioner of the little way. The week of his death, my grandma also received a cassette tape in the mail from a friend. And our family decided to listen to the tape on the evening after his funeral. We were all tired, but we sat down in our living room around the tape quarter and pressed play. It was, we discovered, a recording from a church service at Tabor Mennonite Church that took place on May 19, 1989, which was my grandparents' 40th anniversary. Grandpa had been the worship leader that day, and he opened the service with Psalm 122. I have never been more convinced of the resurrection of the dead than at the moment when I heard him say, as if from beyond dementia and death, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Hearing my grandpa's voice that day was a blessing from the past, I'm sure. But I have also come to believe that it was a gift, a word, a blessing from the future. His future and hopefully ours as well. My son Arnie's middle name is Raymond too. I like the fact that in the middle of his name, at the heart of his identity, as it were, is a clue about his inheritance. 
his great-grandfather pointed toward Jesus and made Jesus present to others. And now Raymond is present with his Lord. May it be so for Arnie. May it be so for you too. Our faith, our inheritance, is one that's passed on from generation to generation, which means that you all have Raymonds of your own, a long line of Raymonds, snaking their way back all the way to the upper room. As you approach the communion rail today to celebrate the Feast of All Saints, I invite you to think of those people, to remember the saints in your lives who have gone before you, and be encouraged by their lives of faithfulness. And then imagine all of us doing that, the great cloud of witnesses. And may you look forward to that day at the end of all time, when you can stand alongside them, clothed in righteousness, in the presence of your inheritance, the Alpha and the Omega, the King. Amen.